far. We'll continue now through the preaching of God's Word. As we do so, I'd like to just welcome you this evening by saying, Merry Christmas. Yeah, I got a response. That's fantastic. <laughs> I was throwing up 50-50 whether I get anything back or not, but, uh, but uh, that's great. Um, if you have your Bibles with us this evening, please uh, turn with me to the book of 1 John, please. The book of 1 John. Some Christians, they, they don't even like using that, uh, that greeting, Merry Christmas. Some think it invites worldliness into the season or or often, as Mary is often, being Mary often is associated with uh, frivolity and, and other pagan traditions. Some would go so far as to say we shouldn't be celebrating Christmas at all out of fear of association with the world and its traditions. And what a joy it is to be among Christian and Christmas loving brothers and sisters this evening. On that thought, though, I do think it's worthwhile to consider the question this evening, what right do we have to be merry at Christmas? What right do we have to be merry this Christmas? It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out that the world we live in is somewhat broken. We're bombarded daily by example after example of man's inhumanity to man. And even those among us who know Christ, we must confess that we don't always line up or live according to the ideals of our faith. And yet, everything about this season causes us, calls us to celebrate and have a Merry Christmas, which again begs the question, what right do we have to be merry this Christmas? For those of us who paid attention in, in Sunday school lessons, the reason we can be merry this season is to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But what right do we have to do that? What is it about Jesus' birth that makes it fitting and appropriate to celebrate? How can we be merry in a world that is groaning under the weight and the effects of sin? Something to help us answer that question is the song that we just sang now, thank you, Dad, for, for putting that song in there. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. And the verse continues, To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. That is why we can be merry this Christmas. This is a season of Joy, we have the right to be merry at Christmas, to celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with gladness and feasting and songs because we have been saved from Satan's power whilst we were gone astray. And we see this reason also stated very simply for us in our text this evening. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to 1 John chapter 3. We'll look at just verse 8. We'll be jumping a little bit around the book of 1 John this evening. But we'll start in chapter 3, verse 8. The beloved apostle says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That is why Jesus came. He came to destroy something. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. You might be thinking, seems awfully dark for an Advent text this evening. I mean, after all, we're admonished to, to keep Christ in Christmas and remember the, the reason for the season and all those things are true. But if I can be permitted to put it this way, we also must keep the devil 
in Christmas. Because he and his forces and his works are very much a part of the reason for the season. So I want to look at this this text very briefly to, to answer the question, what right do we have to be merry at Christmas? And to do so, I have three further questions raised by the text that we have here to answer. First is, what did Christ come to destroy? Secondly, how did he destroy it? And thirdly, why is this all worth celebrating? Or as a Christmas carol says, why are these tidings of comfort and of joy? First question, what is it that the Son of God came to destroy? Verse 8 says very simply, he came to destroy the works of the devil. The logical next question then is, what are the works of the devil? We can answer that by reading our verse in its entirety along with the verses that follow. Verse 8 begins in this way, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Do you notice what word continues to occur in that text? What word continues to occur? Sin. Sin. We see that the devil sinned in verse 8. He sinned from the beginning. Immediately prior to that, we see that the one who practices sin is of the devil. So right here we can conclude that sins are the work of the devil. Sin is what the Son of God came into this world in order to destroy. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy sin. In fact, if you, if you go back up five, to verse 5, uh, it's stated explicitly for us. And you know that he appeared in order to take away the sins of the world. So sin is the enemy that God came to defeat and destroy. Now that prompts us to ask another question. What then is sin? What is sin exactly? But first, whatever sin is, we have to understand that it's It's serious. It's so dangerous, it's so destructive, it's so devastating to everything it touches that it required the very Son of God to step down into this world in order to destroy it. Spurgeon quotes on sin. I'll read it for you because I I love it so much. He says, We dare not laugh at sin or trifle with it, for it is dangerous and deadly because it is of the devil. Oh, if men could see but the slime of the serpent upon their pleasurable sins, or the venom of the asp upon their lusts, and the smoke of hell upon their pride and boastful thoughts, surely they would loathe that which they now delight in. So sin is serious. Sin is is dangerous. But what exactly is it? Verse 8 again, The sin of the devil, John says, is from the beginning. It dates all the way back to when the most glorious angel God ever created attempted to position himself as God's equal, to become a law unto himself. It was this desire to be God that was the original sin. That's why John says back up in verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. 
So whenever we assert our own desires or our preferences above God's, we practice lawlessness. Whenever we choose our ways above God's ways, we are practicing lawlessness. That is why the one who practices sin here, John says, is of the devil. Because whenever we declare our independence from God, we are defying his authority. We are defying his law and we are repeating the devil's sin. And so whether it's an act of of a moment or an attitude of a lifetime, sin is rebellion against God's authority and against God's perfect law. When you scan the scriptures... You see sin described as, as a stain, as a, as a burden, a debt, a thief, sickness, leprosy, a plague, a predator, a poison, serpent, a sting, a crime, a roadblock, a stench, a cruel master, and a load of curses and calamities whose weight causes all of creation to groan. So what is it the Son of God came to destroy? He came to destroy sin. Question two, how did he destroy it? In our verses, in our verse this morning and this evening in our verses around it, we see three ways that the Son of God destroys the work of the devil. And those ways, those three ways, I believe, can be captured for us in three words this evening. The first being incarnation, the incarnation. Make sure that's up there. Beautiful. Verse 8 says, the Son of God appeared to destroy the work of the devil. In other words, for Christ to defeat and destroy sin, it required him to appear. It required him to come from heaven to earth in the flesh as a human being. That is the incarnation, the infleshing of God, if you like, that was required to deal a death blow to the devil. And what we see, and we see that if you turn over to the next chapter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. That sounds a bit like John 3.16, doesn't it? It goes on here, verse 10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that, He loved us and sent His Son. That's the incarnation. He sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Propitiation. Christ's appeasing work. Christ's work. It's a big word for us to try and get our heads around sometimes. It's a very technical, theological word. But but, uh, to simplify it down, it, it is basically just means that it is Christ's appeasing work. Work. The second way, the second word that describes how Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. I've just seen in order for Christ to defeat and destroy sin, it required him to appear. But think with me about this for a moment. Even though he had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, his miraculous birth was not enough to save us from our sins. Even though His active obedience to God was crucial. His perfect life alone was not enough to save us from our sins. 
And even though it was essential for God to raise him from the dead on the third day, according to the Scriptures, the resurrection alone could not save us from our sins. Something more was required than his incarnation to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what John here calls propitiation. Propitiation is the core idea of this word is that the wrath of God or the anger of God could be turned away by a costly blood sacrifice, the poured out life of a substitute sacrifice. And John uses this beautiful word for for two reasons. Firstly, he uses this word to show us the seriousness of our sin. Because God is holy and perfect, because He is righteous, He can't just dismiss our sin, sweeping it under the rug, as it were. The Old Testament shows us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Say, well, wait a minute, I'm a parent. I'm a dad and I love my children and when one of, those, one of my children sins against me and comes and asks for forgiveness, I want to forgive them. And I do. I do forgive them. I mean, God's a, God's a father too, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't he be any different? He'd want to forgive his children. Yes, he does. He is a father. That's absolutely right. But he's not just a father. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the judge of the universe. In order for justice to be justice, it must be impartial. Justice can't be impacted by love or by emotion or by any personal interest of any kind. Have you ever seen or, or noticed at the front of a courthouse when you've been going past the, the statue that's normally there, the statue of, of Lady Justice? It's called that statue. If you haven't noticed it, take a closer look next time you drive past. It's actually really interesting. You'll see that in one hand she has her sword, and in the other hand she has her scales. One thing you often don't notice is her eyes are normally blindfolded, or her eyes are closed, either one. And the reason she is blindfolded is because her only interest is your relation to the law. Justice must be blind and must be impartial. Now, if society requires justice to be blind, how could we have an entire universe where God would be willing to set aside justice on the basis of some appeal to his love? It would not work. Whenever the divine law is violated, someone has to pay. And the price is a life. Before God can ever consider extending forgiveness to, our, to the lawless creatures, justice must be satisfied. That is the, the seriousness of our sin, the price that is required, life for a life, to satisfy God's wrath, God's anger against us. But John also uses this word here, propitiation, to show us the greatness of God's love, the enormity of God's love. Saying, well, Alex, you just said, justice was blind. I thought God couldn't be appealed to on the basis of his love for us. You see, with with justice, when it comes to justice, it's always the offending person who pays the price, right? You don't see any court case where the person who won the case then 
pays for the crime of the guilty. You don't see that. But what did our God do? Remember verse 10 of chapter 4. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His only Son. Not to demand the propitiation for our sins. Oh no, He sent Him to be the propitiation for our sins. God loves us so much that He sent His only Son that by His blood He makes provision for the removal of His wrath and His anger from us. What an incredible thing that is for us as believers. God's perfect justice is achieved because we are guilty. But God's perfect love is achieved because He paid the penalty for our sins. The third way that we see the Son of God destroying and defeating the works of the devil is through regeneration. Turn with me back to uh, 1 John 3, verse 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot because he cannot sin because he is born of God. You see that? That last little bit? He is born of God. That is regeneration. John is not saying that someone who is born of God can't sin, but rather they no longer have the desire to sin. They no longer want to sin. They have a hatred for sin that is against their human nature. Paul refers to it elsewhere as, as a new creation or, or a new man. Jeremiah calls it a new heart. Ezekiel calls it a new spirit. And John, of course, calls it a new birth. So what is this, this new birth? We know a couple of things that this new birth is not. This new birth is, is not just doing the right things and, and being a good person. It's not just believing in the right things. This birth is, new birth is not just a new religion of some kind. This new birth is new life in Christ. It's what happens when the Spirit of God takes those who are spiritually dead in their sins and makes them alive together with Christ. It's what happens at that moment. The power of sin is broken. Regeneration breaks the power of sin in our lives. New life breaks the power of sin. Verse 9 of chapter 3, that person cannot sin because God's seed abides in him. God's spirit is now so deeply implanted and embedded in us that everything about us now hates sin. It confesses sin. It, it recognizes and calls us sin out for what it is. It fights, it struggles against sin because it's incompatible with our new nature. What have we learned so far? We learned that what did the Son of God come to destroy? He came to destroy the works of the devil, which is sin or lawlessness. How did he destroy it? First, by the incarnation, by the appearing at Christmas as the Son of God in human flesh. Secondly, he appeared uh, appeared. And he was, uh, it was by propitiation, by dying on the cross as a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. Thirdly, by regeneration, by giving us new spiritual life, which breaks the power of cancelled sin. And that leads us finally to our last question this evening. 
Why is this such good news? Why do we celebrate this? Why is it worth being merry at Christmas? Or as the the carol says that we sung tonight, why is this truth to be regarded as tidings of comfort and joy? Most folks don't realize that that song, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, that we sang, was actually written some 600 years ago, back in the, the Middle Ages. And some of the words that we sang, they didn't mean the same thing as they perhaps do now. For example, the word rest that we sang. When we think of rest, we think of stopping and putting the feet up and relaxing and going lie down. Rest back then meant to to keep or to remain. It meant to abide, to remain in a state of assurance or of confidence. The word merry was similar, but it didn't have the same sense of frivolity that it does in today's language that we associate with it today. But it meant to be joyful or to be glad. And so this carol was originally written to encourage believers who might be tempted to despair because of the guilt of their sin. The writer of this carol is saying, God keep you joyful, gentlemen. God keep you, help you to continue in your salvation. The reason the writer says that we should be joyful, especially at Christmas, is because of the reason our Savior came. To save us all from Satan's power. That word that we just looked at, that word propitiation, John uses it one more time in this letter back in chapter 2, and I want us just to go there as we close off. John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he himself is what? He is the propitiation for our sins. The Son of God appeared in order to take away our sins. Does that mean everything is honky-dory? We live a good and easy life? Have we been saved and, and, and we're, just, we're just enjoying everything and everything's easy? No. We're going to continue to fail. We're going to continue to fall. We will continue to sin. And when we do, guess who will be there to use our sin against us? The devil. He is the roaring lion, according to 1 Peter. You say, well, if the power of sin has been broken, how can, how can Satan still bother me? Satan, of course, is, is a powerful being. He is a myriad of schemes to use against us. After scanning the Scriptures, we can see that he is a deceiver who disguises himself as the angel of light. He's the tempter who entices us to sin. He's the oppressor, the devourer, the schemer. One of my favorites is Revelation 12.10. He says he is also the accuser of the brethren. Whenever we sin as believers, he not only accuses us before God by bringing out his charges against God's elect, as Romans 8 tells us, he accuses us also. Satan condemns us in our own consciousness and in our own hearts. He, he tempts us to fear. Satan tempts us to fear, fear that somehow we might just be on probation with God. Somehow we're just on parole with God. Perhaps we, we had a clean slate back when we were first saved, but, but any slip-ups after that, then we're going to have to pay something back. John 
Chapter, 1 John chapter 4, 18 says, There is no longer any need for fear because there is no longer any need for punishment. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Not to, to cripple the works of the devil. Not to, to wound the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, which is sin and ultimately death. thinking about this song if my sin not in part but the whole has been nailed to the cross i bear it no more there is no sin for which i will ever have to pay you say well even after i'm saved john 1 2 2 2 1 tells us if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father not Jesus Christ the merciful, not Jesus Christ the persuasive. It is Jesus Christ the righteous one. Perfect justice has been kept. The price has been paid. Every time we sin and the, the devil accuses us before God, Jesus the advocate says to the Father, I loved him. I went to earth in human flesh. I lived the perfect life he could never live. I died the death that he should have died. And when his life is united with my life, when he is born again, his sin becomes my responsibility and my righteousness becomes his. I am the propitiation. He is mine because of what I have done, Jesus says. You understand that, brothers and sisters? When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. That is why Jesus came this Christmas. To destroy the works of the devil. And he did it by defeating sin, by defeating death, by defeating the devil, paying in full for every sin of every one of his children. Only question for us left is do we believe that? Do we believe that in our heart of hearts? That is why we can be merry at Christmas. That is why we can have tidings of, of comfort and joy because Christ came and destroyed the works of the devil. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Let us pray. Father, we pray this evening the truth of this text would become precious to our hearts, especially during this season. We thank you that you've shown us in this simple snapshot of your great love, not that we loved you, but that you loved us. And you sent your son to pay the price for our sins. So we bless your name this evening, Father, because of who you are, because of what you've done through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate with joy this evening. In your precious name we pray. Amen.